Well, good morning. We're so blessed to be together this first day of this new year that God has given us. We are grateful for the year that has passed. We have talked about all through 2022, we talked about endurance and enduring like Christ endured. And we spoke a lot about that in the last lesson that I preached in 2022. We talked about endurance through prayer. And that sort of is a segue into what our theme will be for 2023. If you're visiting with us here this morning, we're really happy that you're here. And we hope that the time that we spend together will lift you up and bring you closer to God. But that indeed is what worship is all about, and it's particularly what prayer is. Coming into the presence of God, acknowledging Him as the one who is the giver of all, and asking Him to help us, to bless us, and thanking Him for all that He's done for us. I'd like you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 56. As we introduce our theme for the year, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. In Isaiah 56, the prophecy pictures God bringing His people from all nations to His holy mountain to make them, it is said, joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Pick up the reading with me in Isaiah 56 and verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast My covenant, even them I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar. For My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations." The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. This is a prophecy of the coming of the great kingdom of the Messiah. When God would open up salvation and fellowship with him to all people. Uh, This prophecy and ones like it uh, are found throughout the last chapters of the book of Isaiah. This great hope of a Messiah coming who would save not only Israel, but save all of mankind or open the opportunity for all mankind to be saved. In this promise, God is opening a door for those who had not had the privilege of coming into His presence before, who had not had the privilege of honoring Him in His holy house in the Old Testament because, frankly, they just weren't invited. Maybe they were foreigners. Maybe they were eunuchs. Maybe they had other problems or differences uh, between themselves and who God chose in the Old Testament age. And to really get a feel for that, let's back up a little bit in this reading and notice what is said in Isaiah 56. Let's back up now in verse 3. Do not let the sons of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from His people. Nor let the eunuchs say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. And to them, even to them, I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. 
and I will give them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. God is giving us great opportunity, or the promise that He will, give a great opportunity to those who are foreigners, to those who are eunuchs, to those whose access to Him in Old Testament times was extremely limited. And He's saying to them in the Old Testament age, if you will still seek Me, if you'll get as close to Me as you can, remember My Sabbaths, those kinds of things, there'll be a time, there'll be a time when the door will be open and you can come right into My house and not only will you be My sons and daughters, you will be better than sons and daughters. It's instructive when we turn to the book of Acts. We go to Acts chapter 8 and what happens? Samaritans are converted. Those who were outcasts before, those who did not have the privileges of the temple, suddenly they're welcomed into the house of God. And the text tells us in Acts chapter 8 about those Samaritans that were converted. There was much joy in that city. And then later on in Acts chapter 8, what happens? There's a eunuch. A eunuch who'd been up to Jerusalem to worship, but his ability to do that in the Old Testament age was limited. And yet a eunuch is brought to know Jesus Christ. Philip reads to him, or he reads from the book of Isaiah, near this same text that we just read about the Messiah who would come as a sacrifice for all men. And a eunuch is brought into the house of God. And you read a little bit further in the book of Acts, and what do you find? You find a foreigner, a Roman, an Italian, Cornelius. And he hears the truth of the Gospel and the Word of Jesus Christ as spoken by the Apostle Peter. And what happens? He's baptized, he and all his household. And they are brought into the house of God. I want you to see that the prophecy in Isaiah 56 was fulfilled in great detail in the pages of the book of Acts. It continues to be fulfilled even today. As you and I, who are not Old Testament Jews and never were, are nonetheless brought into the house of God and being treated better than sons and daughters and being given privileges in God's house to pray to Him, to worship Him, to have fellowship with Him. That's what Isaiah 56 is really all about. I want you to notice there in verse 7 in Isaiah 56 that uh, we're being promised a place in God's house in verse 5. And a holy mountain and a house of prayer in verse 7. These are synonymous terms for a place where the faithful can enjoy a covenant relationship with God. And these truths that are expressed in Isaiah 56 uh, are echoing some things that Isaiah said really in the beginning of his prophecy. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 2, there's a really well-known prophecy. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Here it is said, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. 
Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways. We will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The church is the house of God and the mountain of God that is spoken of in the book of Isaiah. I think most everybody in this room realizes that already, but let's be clear about that. When in Isaiah 56... When in Isaiah 56, God is talking about giving all people access to a house of prayer, to His mountain. He is talking about the church, the church that Isaiah prophesied of in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Isaiah prophesies of the establishment of the mountain of the Lord's house. The church is the house of God. The church is the mountain of God. We don't have to even guess about that as if we couldn't tell it from the prophecies of Isaiah and the fulfillments in the book of Acts. We don't have to guess about it because in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul in writing to Timothy says that he writes so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. What is the house of God in the New Testament age? It is the church. What is the temple of God in the New Testament age? It is the church. What is the mountain of God in the New Testament age? It is the church. And the Hebrew writer will write about it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23 in these terms. He says that we have, you have, come to Mount Zion. That's where we've come. Not that Mount Sinai of the Old Testament age. The people couldn't even draw near to God there. They were so afraid. But we've come to Mount Zion, to the very place where God is. That's the mountain we've come. To the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn whose names are registered in heaven. We are part of that church. We are part of that holy mountain. Mount Zion. We are part of the promise. All nations flowing into it. It then is interesting, I think, very much so, that in Mark chapter 11, Jesus goes into Jerusalem last week of His life before His crucifixion. We can read in the text in Mark 11, starting in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple, began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the doves. And He would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And He taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56-7. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? He was standing in the Jewish temple. But He was prefiguring the coming and the establishment of the heavenly temple. And He teaches a great lesson to us here, not just to the Jews, but I think for us today, about the nature of His temple and its holiness and its specialness. And it's, 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 
the idea that here is where God is who is holy. And we must come to Him in holiness. And we, we must appreciate this opportunity that we have to communicate with Him and He with us in a covenant relationship. The Jews did not appreciate that. The Jews had made the temple into Walmart. I mean, they were just selling stuff right and left. Stuff that was needed by people. We need stuff from Walmart too, right? <laughs> but the church can't be Walmart. That's not what this is about. That's not what our relationship here is about. Not the buying and the selling of things. Not taking care of our physical needs. That's not the big point. The big point is fellowship together with God. And He with us. Jesus cleanses the temple of those who are selling the animals. They needed animals to sacrifice. But that wasn't what the temple was about. The procuring of those animals. Jesus cleansed the temple of the money changers. They needed money to buy, to give to the temple. But that's not what the temple was about. Changing that money for people. Even those who were carrying wares were driven out of the temple. The temple was to be a holy place where God's children come into fellowship with Him. Not a place of fleshly pursuits and common human activities. It's no wonder Paul will later write to the Corinthians about such a thing as a common meal. If anyone's hungry, let them eat at home. That's not what the church is about. Paul will write to the Romans, the, the, the kingdom is not eating and drinking. It is not eating and drinking. But righteousness and joy and peace. The church, we're not talking about this building, we're talking about us. Assembled together in the name of God. This is a holy convocation. In the presence of God. And the church is to be a house of prayer. A place for the purpose of prayer epitomized by prayer. Today, the church is God's holy temple. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 19. And, and notice the language that Paul use, here, uses here as if you've never seen this before. But notice it in light of the prophecy of Isaiah 56. Because in the beginning of this reading, Ephesians 2 and verse 19, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. What was the promise made in Isaiah 56? It was made to the foreigners. Those who could not come as close to God as they wanted to. But now, now, Paul says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Members of the house of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom, you all, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into, guess what? A holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
We, the church, are God's temple. We, the church, are where God dwells today. And therefore, when Isaiah said, and when Jesus repeated, the desire of God, that my house, my house, shall be a house of prayer for all nations, that is God's intention for us. It's one, in fact, of the chief purposes of there being a church. The church should be known for prayer. The church should be epitomized by prayer. The church, the church is God's house of prayer. I must hasten to add to that that when we talk about prayer in this context, it is not just prayer that God has in mind. Prayer represents in these passages really all of worship. Let me explain that for just a moment. There's a figure of speech, and it's not necessarily that you know this word, synecdoche is the word, it's kind of fun to say, but other than that, it has no you know, special greatness to it. But synecdoche is a figure of speech in which a key component of something stands for the entire thing. And you may say, well, I've never heard of that before. Well, maybe not, but you use it all the time. The Bible uses it all the time in this particular figure of speech. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 11, Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Is that all you want is bread today? Wouldn't you maybe like a, at least some bologna or something with that? <laughs> Leftover turkey or something? But the bread, we understand, stands for all of your food. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. And so it is in Matthew 4 and verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus means by physical food alone. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, the saints were breaking bread from house to house. Was that all they had to eat? Well, certainly not. But the bread represents their daily meals and all that went along with that. And so it is with prayer. Often in the Bible, actually, the prayer, the idea of prayer, stands for all of worship. You think about what prayer is. Communication to God. Coming into His presence. Making this connection with God. And, and really, all of worship is, is that. But prayer is that in a very specific way, isn't it? And so it, it tends to represent... Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about there. In the book of Acts chapter 16, in verse 13, uh, Paul and his companions were in Philippi. On the Sabbath day, it says, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. The ESV and the ASV say where we suppose there was a place of prayer. So they're looking for a place of prayer or this is where prayer is customarily made. Read on. We sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Well, wait a minute. I thought you were just praying. <laughs> but they're, they're speaking to people who are there and they wind up teaching Lydia. Lydia heard us. She was one who worshipped God. Again, more than just prayer, right? So there's teaching and there's worship going on in a place that was just described as a place of prayer. The place of prayer is a place of worship. 
if you look back at Isaiah 56 and verse 7, you can see that even in the text. It's very clear that God is not just talking about prayer alone, but other acts of worship that go with it. Go back to Isaiah 56 and verse 7. Notice this now with me. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. What's that about burnt offerings and sacrifices in the middle of that? <laughs> if his house is called a house of prayer. Well, the prayer stands for, again, worship. That was part of their Old Testament worship. And so we are the house of God, the mountain of God, a temple in which prayer is offered, through which prayer is offered, but also all of worship is enjoined. And so it's interesting to me as a figure of speech, as a way to conceptualize this, that prayer is sometimes likened to offering incense and sacrifice in Scripture. If you go to Psalm 1 and verse 2, the psalmist writes, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Actually, the psalmist there compares prayer to two things. The burning of incense before God, but also the evening sacrifice offered to God. Prayer is like worship. Prayer epitomizes worship. And so we have in the New Testament uh, similar references, particularly in the book of Revelation, where in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, in that great throne scene where the Lamb appears before the throne, he took the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The incense represent the prayers of the saints. And so it is in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. There was an angel having a golden censer. He came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. I really like that figure, that metaphor of our prayers ascending to God just as incense would come up with a sweet smell, with seeing maybe some of the smoke into somebody's presence infiltrate their, their nostrils, come into their being. And so our prayers go up before God like incense, like offering as worship. And having said all of that then, let's go back to the point of this morning's lesson. The church is a house of prayer. Individually and collectively. We must see ourselves as a praying people and be a praying people. We are praying servants. We are praying warriors. We are praying priests. The Bible uses all of that in describing what we do in prayer. The church in the New Testament prayed steadfastly. It prayed passionately. 
It prayed earnestly. It prayed vigilantly. Look at the text. Acts 2 and verse 42. The saints there continued steadfastly. Not only in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, but in prayers. They continued steadfastly in prayers. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, Peter was thrown in prison by Herod. He was keeping him like a, like a pinned up animal to slaughter him after the feast day was over. Peter was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Constant prayer offered to God for him by the church. And I'm sure it was passionate as people pled for Peter's safety. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul tells the Colossians to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Earnest, sincere, dedicated to it, vigilant, always watchful, always looking for things that need to be prayed about. Vigilant in prayer. The word vigilant suggests watchful for immediate needs. We don't just pray the same old prayer all the time because things change in our lives and we see other things that need praying for. Other people that need praying for. Other concerns come up. Other realizations concerning God's Word. We learn to pray about those. So, vigilance implies praying for immediate needs. It implies a degree of spontaneity in our prayers. It implies staying in the moment with prayer. Staying in the moment with prayer. This is how the church was to pray in the New Testament. Prayer wonderfully and beautifully unites unites us in the house of God and it empowers us and our efforts to persuade the lost. I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John had been arrested, uh, mistreated, but let go by the council. And so being let go, we come to Acts 4 and verse 23. I'm just going to read this text and then we'll make some observations about it. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, You are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of Your servant David has said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly, Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the Word of God with boldness. I want to notice some things about the prayer of these early disciples. First of all, it was a prayer that 
was a prayer of unity. The text says in uh, verse 24, the New King James Version, that they raise their voice to God with one accord. When we pray as an assembly of the people of God, we are, we are one. When we say the amen at the giving of a prayer, we are assenting as one to what is being prayed. And there is great power in that before the throne of God. Second thing I want you to notice is they prayed Scripture. Did, did you notice they quote from something David wrote in the Psalms? Why do the nations rage? They've come against you. But they quote a text of Scripture to God in their prayer. Now, I've heard this criticized in times past where you know somebody in their prayer in an assembly will, will pray and they'll, they'll, they'll say a verse of Scripture or part of a verse of Scripture and somebody will say to them afterwards or complain, don't they think God knows His own Scripture? Why, why are we quoting Scripture to God? Well, we're quoting Scripture to God and in doing that, doing the same thing that, that David did in prayer, that Daniel did in prayer, that Nehemiah did in prayer. <laughs> what we're saying is, God, we know what you said. And we assent to what you said. And we believe in what you said. And we know that you want this to be true too. And we're praying based on what you've said. One of the things we want to do this year, as we think about being a house of prayer, and couple that with our readings of Scripture, our, our daily Bible reading, is that we want to couple what the Scriptures say with what we're praying about. We want to pray when the Scriptures say this is the way something's supposed to be or this is what God's people are supposed to do or this is a lesson that men need to learn. We want to pray about that. Praying Scripture is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. We're calling upon God to do what God has said He will do. And I tell you what, when you pray Scripture, you're 100% guaranteed of this. You are praying according to the will of God. We noticed in our sermon last time, last week, about prayer. Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. When you pray Scripture, you know you're praying according to God's will. And there's power in that. These people prayed Scripture. These people acknowledged God's sovereignty. They acknowledged, first of all, that He is creator of heaven and earth. He's the God who made heaven, earth, the sea, everything that's in them. They also say that whatever is being done is being done because you determined it to be done. They recognize that God's hand is in this world. That He does whatever His counsel says to do will be accomplished in this world. No matter what men try. No matter, no matter how men rail against it. God's counsel and will will be done ultimately. And then, I want you to notice in verses 29 and 30 of their prayer that they ask for boldness. Boldness that they may speak the Word. In a house of prayer that's devoted to the glory of God, there is an overwhelming desire that God will be done 
and that we obey God's will. The Lord's will is that His word be preached to all nations. When we preach about evangelistic efforts, our own, those of others around us, those in foreign lands, we are certainly praying God's will. I want you to notice what is not prayed for in this prayer. What is not prayed for as they pray for boldness. They did not pray, grant that we may be kept safe. That may be prayed in other places, but it's not prayed here. They did not pray, Lord, don't anything, don't let anything bad happen again like happened to Peter and John. They did not pray that. They didn't even pray, Lord, let Peter and John be protected. Although, Paul asked for a prayer similar to that elsewhere. But that's not what they prayed here. You know what they prayed? That they might speak the word with boldness, no matter what. God wasn't going to take the persecution away. God was not going to stop at this stage the Jews from trying to obstruct the spread of the gospel. The next time Peter and John and the apostles get in the temple, not too long after this, you know what happens, right? <laughs> They're arrested again. Yet they still speak with boldness. Let's pray that we will do what God wants done. No matter what it takes. Evangelistically, in our communities, in our personal lives, standing up for what's right in our society. That we will do what God wants done. And that we'll have the strength to do that. Whatever we must face. We are, after all, a royal priesthood. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. We are. We've been saved and made a royal priesthood in part to pray. To come into the presence of God. And whenever we come into His presence in prayer, as the priests of old, we come as incense. We are, in doing that, arriving at the very pinnacle of God's purposes for us. Jesus has brought us near to God by His sacrifice. He is our perfecting high priest. Because of this, the Hebrew writer says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we close this morning, I just want to say two or three quick things and the lesson will be yours. Let's be a house of prayer. Individually and collectively. If we want to see lives changed, our lives changed, if we want to see the lives of others changed, we must be a house of prayer. If we want to have an impact in this world, we must be a house of prayer. If we want to see the church become what God designed it to be, 
in form, in function, in unity, in spirit, in love. We must be a house of prayer. This year, this year our theme is intended to challenge us to grow individually and collectively and to be a house of prayer for all nations. We'll have much more to say about various aspects of this, Lord willing, as we go through the year, if He spares. But we are thankful this day, this first day of this new year, to be able to look forward, again, God willing, to growing in our prayer life as a church and as individuals. I could be talking to somebody here this morning who really doesn't have much of a prayer life, maybe not any, because you're not in a covenant relationship with God. God invites you, whoever you are, into His house for a relationship with Him that's better than the relationship of sons and daughters. To be a true child of His. To be able to commune with Him. He invites you into His house. Jesus shed His blood for the bride, for you. And if you'll take advantage of that today by naming His name, turning away from sin and being baptized in water for the remission of your sins. You can be a part of God's holy mountain, God's great house, His holy temple, the church. We'd ask you to come while we stand and sing.